Matthew chapter 21 begins with the words, As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, entering Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Now, it's important to understand that Matthew starts this story with these words, because Matthew is setting the scene for the story. This is a real place at a real time for Matthew, and Matthew is anticipating that you'll know where Bethphage is, specifically at the Mount of Olives. And if you were to go to Jerusalem today and stand on top of the Mount of Olives from Bethphage, your view of Jerusalem would look like this. And this is where this story unfolds. We read these words from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, Go into the village straight ahead of you, and immediately you will find a tethered donkey with her colt standing beside her. If anyone questions you, say, The rabbi needs them, and they will let them go at once. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to go to a farming village and said, give me your livestock. <laughs> Typically, they do not hand over their livestock. What this is telling us is that the code word that Jesus has done ahead of time with people in Jerusalem is, hey, when someone comes along and says the rabbi needs them, I need your donkey, and they gave it to him. So the disciples then go into ahead of what uh, went off in front of everybody else and did what Jesus had Ordered. They brought the donkey and her colt after they laid their cloaks on the animals, and Jesus mounted and rode toward the city. So this ride begins on this mountain that we're on here in this picture, and meanders all the way down through this valley and then back up to Jerusalem, and scholars believe that Jesus then entered into Jerusalem through this gate right here, which has since been sealed. This is known as the Golden Gate, and it is believed that Jesus entered Jerusalem there, but not first before walking down or riding down on a donkey through the valley between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem. Now, the story goes that on his way, great crowds began to assemble and wave palm fronds in the air, and they began to shout praises and shout in jubilation. They said things like, Hosanna to the heir to the house of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Most High. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this is a big deal in Matthew's mind who's writing this story because he sees a direct line between his heritage and the fulfillment of Jesus riding on a donkey. So much so that in his story, he puts in a note and says, this came about to fulfill what was said through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, your sovereign comes to you without display, riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, while we read today Matthew saying the prophet, it's important for us to acknowledge that Matthew is thinking of one prophet in particular, the prophet Zechariah. Can I hear you say Zechariah this morning? Zechariah is one of those guys that once you say it, there's some political figures who shiver. And the reason for that is you have to understand the whole story of Zechariah, which I will tell you, most Christians do not know. Now, to understand who Zechariah is, you have to go back about 600 years before Jesus rides across this valley on a donkey to the year 586 BCE. And what I'm about to give you is a gross oversimplification, but we got to keep things moving so that way my wife doesn't fall asleep, right? 
So 586 BCE, Jerusalem is right here in the same spot it is today. There is an empire that rises to the east known as Babylon. Babylon launches an assault on Jerusalem, and it's an empire versus a tiny little village, and all of a sudden Jerusalem is leveled. Now, the people of Jerusalem then are dragged back across the desert and forced to live as Babylonians. This is known as the exile. And while it's easy for us to put little arrows on a map, you have to feel the emotional weight whenever you hear the words, the exile. You have to think about what it would be like to watch your own city burn and then be forced by your oppressors to go live somewhere else. So this was a big deal in Jewish history, and it's really important to understand this story and the emotional weight to understand how it is that Zechariah wrote what he wrote. So the the people from uh, Judah are living in exile. They are living there for 47 years when in 539 BCE, one of the most unexpected things happens, another empire rises to the east known as Persia. Persia attacks Babylon, they defeat Babylon, they send the people of Judah back home after 47 years, and they arrive in Jerusalem, and everything is in ruins. Nobody rebuilt the city while they were gone. And so they look at each other and they say, huh, how are we going to rebuild Jerusalem? Like, we're starting from scratch, essentially. What kind of city is it that we should build? Now, it's shortly after they start asking this question that Zechariah enters the scene, And he's got some ideas for what kind of city they should build. So much so that he says he's gotten a vision from God telling him what kind of city they're supposed to build. Zechariah writes, Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls because the multitude of people and animals in it. For I will be a wall of fire all around it, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within it. So after being defeated by the Babylonians, the people of Judah come back to Jerusalem and Zechariah stands up and says, I got an idea. The walls didn't work before. Let's just get rid of them and welcome everyone in. And as you can imagine, this made a lot of people in Jerusalem very nervous because they said, no, no, we need bigger walls than we had before to make sure that we're more protected. One of those people was a man named Nehemiah, And Nehemiah believed strongly the opposite of what Zechariah believed, which was, we need a wall around the city. And Nehemiah, unlike Zechariah, had a title and the backing of the Persian government to rebuild the wall. And sometime around the mid-5th century, they rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem under the guidance of Nehemiah. Now, I tell you that because it gives you a perception of who Zechariah is. This is the guy who says, open borders, welcome everyone, right? Nehemiah is, let's build a wall. Try to imagine a political parallel if you can, okay? So we read then in Zechariah, he writes this, which is later cited by Matthew. Rejoice in heart and soul, daughter of Zion. Shout with gladness, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your ruler comes to you victorious and triumphant and humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in other words, Zechariah has this vision of a new kind of ruler of Jerusalem. And this guy is riding in on a donkey. And this ruler, according to Zechariah, is very different than any ruler that's come before. So much so that he says, this ruler will banish chariots from Ephraim. Well, what are chariots? 
Chariots are some of the most powerful military tools that are available during Zechariah's day and age. Today, this would be like an F-35 fighter jet. And he says, this ruler will come in and dismantle the planes that we have. This ruler will come in and banish horses. Now, Zechariah is not against equestrian folks here. Zechariah is against the military use of horses. And so this is like him saying, you know what? This new ruler is going to come into our country and get rid of all of our tanks. Just get rid of them. They're worthless in this, under this ruler's new reign. And then he goes on to say, and the bow will be banished. I don't think Zechariah would be a fan of the Second Amendment if he was living in America. Now, you may say, I disagree with you, Craig, to which I would say, oh, no, no, disagree with Zechariah. That's him that's saying this, right? And the idea that we all have to agree with every person in the Bible will start to get stretched by this very notion with a lot of Christians that I know, right? Because when it says the bow will be banished, I have this sense that if Zechariah was alive today, he would feel just as strongly about weapons with long ranges of bow back then. He then goes on to say, the ruler will proclaim peace for the nations, the empire stretching from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So between the imagery and also all the things that this ruler is banishing, Zechariah gives this vision of a new kind of ruler that will ride into town, not on a horse, but on a donkey. And when you see a new kind of ruler riding in on a donkey, know that a new era of peace is being ushered in. According to Zechariah, the Messiah will not just be another military conqueror. A military conqueror will ride into a new place on a horse. This guy, the new guy, the one that brings about actual change, will be a guy who rides on a donkey. Now, fast forward 500, 600 years to Jesus actually riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And what's fascinating that's not in the text but is implied if you look closely is picked up by a couple of historians named Marcus Borg and John Dominic Croissant. They have realized that during this week, Jesus was not alone on marching into the city. In fact, they will say in their book, two processions entered Jerusalem on a spring day around the year 30, and they believe that these processions happened at the exact same time. They said from the east, if you look at Jerusalem, from the east, if you look up here, this is the golden gate where Jesus entered that I showed you earlier. From the east, Jesus rode a donkey down the Mount of Olives, cheered by his followers. But from the west, they say, in this gate right here, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, as assigned by the empire of Rome, he came to town for a week during Holy Week every year because they were fear fearful of an uprising. And so from the west, Pontius Pilate, the governor, arrived, and he entered Jerusalem at the head of a column of imperial cavalry and soldiers. So on the eastern side of Jerusalem, you have Jesus surrounded by children with palm branches, and on the western side of Jerusalem, you have Pontius Pilate followed by a battalion armed to the teeth. This contrast is the tension you should feel when you read the text, when we read about Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. After all, there is a stark contrast between the way of Pontius Pilate and the way of Jesus, isn't there? Because the way of Rome is violence, but the way of Jesus is nonviolence. The way of Rome is powerful and arrogant, 
But the way of Jesus is grassroots and humble. The way of Rome clings to weapons. The way of Jesus clutches greenery. The way of Rome is intimidating, but the way of Jesus is inclusive. Everybody who can grab a palm branch can come join this party, right? The way of Rome is war, but the way of Jesus is peace. Now, Matthew picks up on this, and he hears about Jesus riding in on donkey. He says, Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures. He's a different kind of leader than Pontius Pilate. He's a different kind of leader than all those other kinds of leaders. So I will tell this story, and I will cite specifically the prophet Zechariah, that guy who said, let's build cities without walls because we need more peace in our lives, right? Now, Matthew was not alone. Mark also tells this story, and so does Luke, and so does John. This is one of those stories that appears in all four Gospels, and they all viewed it as significant because they recognized that Jesus isn't just another ruler that invites you to change teams. Jesus is a revolution in their minds. And when you look at that, you look at these two contrasts between Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ going into Jerusalem at the same time, and you realize that this armed imperial march is the way of Julius Caesar, of Genghis Khan, of Alexander the Great, and every prominent leader of an empire. But this right here, this is the way of Jesus. And the thing that the four gospel writers agree on is that this is the way that we go going forward. We don't do this anymore as Christians, and this is all settled, and everything is agreed upon, and you get four people who are very different to say, well, let's all agree that this is what, who Christians should be going forward, and they all say amen, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> and then the strangest thing happened about 65 years later. And I have to tell you, this is so strange that I found myself chuckling in my office frequently because this is a story that you almost can't make up. Because about 65 years after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, we go north from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the purple star. We go north to the province of Asia, where a guy named John, who we do not believe is John the Apostle or John the Disciple, a guy named John was living there, and he sat down to write a letter, and this letter would eventually become the book of Revelation. Now, I don't know if you've read Revelation, if you have, congratulations, you finished it. I'm proud of you. If you haven't, eh, you might want to skip it. <laughs> Anyways, the book of Revelation is about the apocalypse. And it's here that John from Asia stands up and says, I want to tell you about who I understand Jesus to be. And he goes to this story that's filled with all sorts of symbolism, uh, violence, anger, bitterness, a lot of wrath from God. And it all concludes with Jesus showing up at the end in Revelation 19. This is one of the most famous passages of Scripture. And John looks up and he says, Then I saw heaven itself standing open, and a white horse appeared. Its rider was called Faithful and True, a warrior for justice, a judge with integrity. The warrior has eyes like a blazing flame and is crowned with many crowns, inscribed with a name no one else has ever known. The warrior wears a cloak dipped in blood and is known by the name, the Word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following the warrior, also riding white horses. They were dressed in dazzling white linen. Out of the warrior's mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. They will be ruled with an iron rod, and the warrior will tread out the wine of Almighty God's fierce wrath. This is the name written on the warrior's robe and thigh, sovereign of sovereigns and ruler of rulers. The enemies were then thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and all the rest were killed by the sword that came out of the warrior's mouth, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. That last line is really the cherry on top, isn't it? It's like, was that, was that necessary, John? Please, do not miss what is happening here, because I do not feel like Christians talk about this at all. We have a story in the Gospels about the governor of Judah riding in on a horse and Jesus riding in on a donkey as a critique of the leader riding on a horse. 65 years later, John, who writes Revelation, says, actually, Jesus is on the horse. 65 years after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and Pilate rode into Jerusalem on a horse, the author of Revelation said, Actually, in this story, Pilate is more like God than Jesus, to which we can only offer one word that is a theological critique that is the best critique I can offer. Bruh! <laughs> this is a story about a biblical contradiction, right? And the author of Revelation heard about Jesus riding in on a donkey, and the author of Revelation was like, that's nice, but does it work all the time? What happens when you're threatened? What happens when your back's against the wall? What happens when you feel oppressed? Wouldn't a glorified, conquering king be better than that guy on the donkey? And within just a few decades of Christian history, Christians were already giving up on a peaceful Messiah. Now, I say all this. I know a lot about Revelation. I, I've studied Revelation pretty thoroughly. I want you to know I also have empathy for John who wrote Revelation. The reason I have this empathy is because I know he was facing an intense persecution, the likes of which I have never been through. And if he heard me saying all this today, he would say to me, you weren't there, Craig. And I would say, I know. I know I wasn't there. But I have a feeling that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would say, oh, we were there. We were persecuted. We went through it too. And they would have words with John from Revelation that I believe would be very unanimous. No, 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 we were trying to leave this behind, John. Why are you bringing us back into this? Now, about 2,000 years later, there's a church here in America. And when I say church, I'm using the capital C church, like all of the church here in America. I grew up in church. Most people here also grew up in church. And a question I want you to ask yourself this morning is this. Which Jesus did your church proclaim? Jesus on a donkey or Jesus on a horse? Because I can tell you that my church proclaimed both, but the Jesus on the horse always won. It was like, yeah, yeah, Jesus rode in on a donkey, but the horse, beware of him, because he's coming. And the Jesus on the horse beat the Jesus on a donkey every single time. And I couldn't believe it. I always heard about all of these things, and they're like, this is who your champion is. Swear your allegiance to him, and you can live. 
Well, that's the same as every other conqueror, isn't it? Now, what's really fascinating about this is I grew up in a church that prioritized Jesus on a horse more than Jesus on a donkey. And when I look at what we went through this week, I look through all of this tragedy that happened when we suffered yet again another mass shooting. And it's heartbreaking. And it's hard to keep processing the fact that this is happening over and over again and we can't figure out how to handle this or change something about it. And yet what I hear over and over again from Christians who are a little more left-leaning than me, what I hear from them is like, I just can't believe those Christians. Don't they know Jesus is a God of peace? To which my response is, it's not the individual's fault. It's the church's fault. Because the church chose the Jesus of Revelation over the Jesus of the Gospels. And whenever you hear somebody say, well, my God has given me my gun and it's my right, it's because they probably heard at church more about Jesus on a horse than they heard about Jesus on a donkey. Do you remember in 2018 when that church in Pennsylvania had a service where they were blessing their AR-15 rifles and they wore like bullet crowns? you remember that? When I saw that, you know what I thought? Oh, revelation. It's that book's fault. This is just a group who said, we have two different versions of Jesus. The church chose the Jesus of Revelation, and it's easy for me to say, you sinners. But I grew up in that church too. When I think about what happens when the church chooses Revelation over the Jesus of the Gospels, you get into all this category of Christian nationalism and the idea that Jesus loves our country more than any others and that we're kind of like missionaries to the world. That Christian nationalism is tied directly to a conquering Messiah who is building an empire just like all the other empires before him. Not only that, but when you look at Revelation's vision of heaven, it's got a wall. It's got extreme vetting. It's got some real tough things about it, right? Where it's like, hey, if you're Christian, you get in, but we don't have to deal with all you other people. That's a church choosing Revelation over the Jesus of the Gospels. And my friends... This may not be easy to hear, but I have found it to be true in my life. Revelation will lead you to follow Pontius Pilate into Jerusalem, not Jesus. Now, at this point, you may say, this guy is a heretic, to which I would say, get in line. (laughs) You know who else was a heretic? A man named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther hated Revelation. To give you an idea of how much he hated Revelation... Martin Luther did this thing that was really remarkable. He translated the Bible into the language of the common person in Germany, and it was revolutionary throughout European history, right? What most people don't talk about, though, is that when he translated the Bible, he actually changed the order of the books than what we have now, and he put four books at the end that said, these are disputed works, one of which was Revelation. And he said, this is a disputed book of the Bible. He even went so far as to campaign about getting it out of the canon. And then he wrote an intro when he realized he wasn't going to win that battle. He wrote an intro when he translated this into the common language of people, introducing the book of Revelation to the common person. This is before anybody could read Revelation. He gave him this intro. He said, finally, let everyone think of Revelation as his own spirit leads him. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me... This is reason enough not to think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in Revelation. 
But to teach Christ, this is the thing which an apostle is bound above all else to do. As Christ says in Acts 1, you shall be my witnesses. Therefore, I stick to the books which present Christ to me clearly and purely, implying revelation is not one of them. And so when you look at this, you're all of a sudden in this position where you're looking at me saying, hey, revelation will lead you to Pontius Pilate, not Jesus. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, this guy's so traditional. He's been tapping into the tradition for so long. This is 500 years old we've been doing this. And yet, even though it's 500 years old, it feels like it was written for us today because I really believe strongly that the church should condemn Revelation wholeheartedly. We should say, this isn't our Jesus, you guys. Yes, it's in our book, but we talk about it to remind ourselves how far away from Jesus riding on a donkey this, this book is. We must condemn Revelation and champion the Gospels. We have to do both at the same time. We have to get good at condemning Revelation because it is a book that is written in a way that drags us backwards away from the progressive ideas of the gospel. And I think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would all agree with me on that front. Now, at this point, you may be hearing all this, and you may think, I'm not a churchy person, I'm not a Christian, to which I would say, yes, but this still applies to all of us. Because when I think about my own life, I found that my default is to always default to the mentality that if we just have a better conqueror in charge, then everything will work out, right? This is basically the plot of every Marvel movie, you know what I'm talking about? As long as the guy with the biggest gun is a good guy, peace, right? That's the opposite of Jesus riding in on a donkey, okay? And the question we have to ask ourselves is, which way is it that we're following? Are we following the way of a donkey or the way of a horse? And the way that you can tell is you look at your own life and you ask yourself, what is it that I prioritize? Do I prioritize being right above everything else? Looking at you on the left side of the aisle? If that's the case, then maybe you should say, oh, I don't know if being right's the most important thing. If you think to yourself, oh man, I can love someone so much more when they believe like the same that I do, that's rough. That's much more of a Jesus on a horse than a Jesus on a donkey. And your priorities in life reveal which way you are following. And the thing that's fascinating about this story between Jesus on a horse and Jesus on a donkey is it makes it very clear how radical and progressive Jesus was in the way that he included people and sought to bring about peace. Because even after his life, Christians could hardly believe it to the point where they started telling the story of like, oh, no, no, Jesus is actually on a horse with a sword, and he's going to be like all those other leaders. We're just, we're just on the right team this time. But when I look at the story of Jesus, he's like five days away from his death in this story. And I've heard people say, like, oh, you know, peace is good until, you know, stuff hits the fan. And then once that stuff hits the fan, well, then it's all, all bets are off, right? But this is right before his death. And he still believed in it to his dying breath. And when the good news of the gospel is this, peace is possible even in the face of death. And if you think about how different your life is, 
whether you follow Jesus on a horse or Jesus on a donkey, you can see how each of these decisions that you make in your daily life will start to be impacted based on which one you are following. And while this is pretty much the way we default to, because we always think we know better, and as long as people listen to us, everything will work out, Jesus challenges us to think about peace and reconciliation and amends and apologies in brand new ways. And when we think about what this weekend represents, tomorrow is called Palm Sunday, the day that we all celebrate across the globe, Christians, Jesus riding in on a donkey. My blessing for you this morning is this Palm Sunday, may you step away from Pilate's imperial march and join the grassroots party of Jesus' march for peace. This Palm Sunday, may you boldly condemn the book of Revelation and embrace the challenging beauty of the Gospels. This Palm Sunday, may you become graciously less judgmental and become delightfully more curious. And this Palm, on this Palm Sunday, may you trust the path of Jesus Christ and discover that peace is possible, even in the face of death. Amen.